2: influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com
3: This
4: is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio
2: Hello Walgreens welcome to Theranos We're going to launch in September but we're going to launch in phases phase 1 we're going to use the Siemens machines to run the tests I think I can program new software for it that says Theranos.
1: I love you.
4: All Greens just need to know exactly what we're running the tests on.
2: Yeah, this is just phase one. The dropout on Hulu is the latest recounting of the spectacular rise and fall of Elizabeth Holmes and her blood testing startup Theranos. With a sort of co-starring role for her former boyfriend and Theranos president, Ramesh Sunny Belwani. The first episode premiered just in time for the start of Balwani's trial in the same courthouse where Holmes was convicted of defrauding investors in January and on the same charges. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt, who also covered the Holmes trial. This trial started about two and a half months after the conviction of Elizabeth Holmes. Was it difficult to get a jury who didn't know about that trial?
4: Incredibly difficult. So the attorneys and the court ran into all the same problems that they had with Elizabeth Holmes in terms of the exposure to the book and just the coverage generally. But now add the dropout, this docudrama series, which has just only added to the exposure. So it took five or six days and a number of groups of jurors who were excused.
2: There was a media circus for Elizabeth Holmes' trial. What about Balwani's?
4: it's greatly diminished. I mean, it's basically non-existent. There are journalists covering the trial for sure, but the members of the public, you don't see them. It's a rather quiet affair.
2: In the opening statements, the prosecutor repeatedly started sentences with Balwani and Holmes. Tell us what that indicates.
4: The opening arguments were very much the same as they were against Elizabeth Holmes. They were streamlined, so it was a lot cleaner. The rough edges kind of weren't there. And by pairing him with Elizabeth, they're really aiming at the conspiracy theory. They were indicted as co-conspirators, so that's an important charge. But also, they're just trying to pair him with everything that she did. And that's not difficult, because the texts and emails, all the conversations, really all the functions of the company, and they were romantically involved.
2: Was there a differentiation between what Balwani did and what Holmes did, or is the prosecution just lumping them in together for everything?
4: They're lumping them together for most things, I would say, but there is a distinction. Sonny Balwani was in charge of the laboratories, so he had more exposure to two important facts. One is the bad blood results, the inaccuracies of the Theranos technology. So he had more exposure to that from both just the results themselves, but also complaints from employees about the inaccuracies. He also was in charge of finances or more in charge of revenue projections. Elizabeth Holmes tried to blame him for that, but he did have more of a hand in in those projections, as well as the company's relationship with Walgreens. So there are some differences, and the prosecution will seek to kind of emphasize those areas in which Sonny Balwani was more exposed or had a greater responsibility for what they say are the inaccuracies and the fraud
2: much was made at Holmes trial she accused Balwani of emotional and sexual abuse but there won't be any mention of that at this trial
4: I don't think so I mean there's kind of one very sensational question which is whether or not she's now cooperating with the government to reduce her sentence marginally that would be marginally at this point given how long she waited to cooperate and whether she'll testify in which case maybe that testimony comes out but I think The chances of her testifying are unlikely, and there's no reason she was the one who leveled those charges at him, not the government. The government has no interest or really right to mention any of that.
2: Do some people actually think that she will testify?
4: Many media, of course, want her to testify because it would be so great, you know, really kind of bring <laughs> yes, the whole thing back. And, but there's just a lot of risks. And it's also been pointed out to me repeatedly that the government really doesn't need her for its case. The downsides of the risks don't outweigh what seem to be the risks of kind of making the trial about her again. I don't think the government wants to do that.
2: Elizabeth Holmes made the risky decision of taking the stand. That didn't help ultimately, but it might have helped with some of the counts against her. What about Belwani? Any indication that he might take the stand as well?
4: No, again, very unlikely. She was compelling, right? I mean, she was believable whether or not you actually did end up believing what she said, she at least had a chance of convincing jurors of her side of the story. And it was believable, even though maybe it doesn't sound it if you were there, But he doesn't have that kind of charisma. He seems uncomfortable just generally in the courtroom, in the spotlight. And it's just almost unimaginable to believe that he or his lawyers would feel that his testimony would serve his defense.
2: It would be hard to top her magnetism, that's for sure. What did Bilwani's attorney reveal about the defense in his opening statement?
4: You know, this is where this case is very interesting to me, and it stands to be completely different from Elizabeth Holmes's trial. There's a database at Theranos that collected the results of patient tests, giant database. And it was, for lack of a better word, destroyed. And Sonny Balwani and his lawyers are pointing to that database to say the government has selected you know, just a sliver, the thinnest fraction of test results, of bad test results for its case. They're going to bring patients on saying we got inaccurate results. But what Sonny Balwani's lawyers are saying is that there were 9 million results in this database and you didn't even bother to look at them. And so we are being unfairly impugned. There are inaccuracies at laboratories all the time. And we suffered maybe a reasonable number of inaccuracies, but you failed to look at all the great tests, all the perfectly accurate results. That's a uh, kind of fraught defense in its own way. The government alleges that Theranos intentionally destroyed this database. So this trial looks like it's gonna be headed towards a kind of trial about this database if Sonny Balwani continues to go down that road. I think it's actually strategically a great choice for him. I think it gives him at least a chance.
2: Did the defense attorney also point at Holmes as the real guilty party here?
4: They did. They pointed out that she founded the company. She was the CEO. She was in charge of the company for years before he came on as president, and that's all accurate. And so they kind of brushed at that. They didn't go as forcefully in that direction as I had expected, as I mentioned It looks like they're relying more on this defense based on the defunct database than pointing at her. She suffered from the same problem. As you mentioned, she pointed the finger at him, and now he's left the door open to doing that to her. But like I said, they're so paired, the text and the communications, the romantic involvement. They're just so completely tied together that it's, I think, very difficult for either one to extract themselves from the alleged co-conspiracy.
2: Holmes was the face of the business, and she was the darling of the media. There were all these different interviews with her, and she was on the cover of magazines, all the boasting to investors and the media. So was that all done by Holmes? Will Balwani get a pass on some of that?
4: I think he does get a pass on that. I mean, he just wasn't – her testimony, her trial showed that he had dressed her up and he had prepared her and he had a strong hand in making her. Uh, be that person. But uh, the testimony also revealed that she enjoyed that, and that was a role that she embraced. And he wasn't, yeah, he didn't make many of these public statements. He wasn't out there uh, making these claims as publicly as she was. And I think that helps him, but not enough, not enough to absolve him.
2: So the charges are the same. Are many of the witnesses going to be the same? Is it going to be like a rerun?
4: It is. It is. I think the the one question is whether the patients will be different, or the government will spend more time on patients who claim that they got bad results and what the what the kind of bad effects of those bad results were, because the government spent very little time on that actually in her trial and. Uh, She was uh, absolved. She was vindicated on all the counts of patient fraud, all of them. So it remains to be seen whether or not the government is kind of happy just to kind of taint him with these patients, even if they don't quite connect him to the fraud against them, or if they look to shore up their case and bring in more patients or patients with uh, kind of darker, more disturbing stories about the test results and whether or not they choose to emphasize that part of their case more.
2: Obviously, this isn't a retrial, but it seems a lot like a retrial. Who do you think has the advantage, the prosecution or the defense?
4: It's hard to say, really. I mentioned the opening arguments. The government's opening arguments were really strong because they have been through this before, and they won, right? They won. So you can kind of do what you did before, and if it isn't broke, then don't fix it kind of attitude. On the other hand... Sonny Balwani got to see the whole thing before he had to go to trial, and so he knows what's coming. And so, hard to say. I think the advantage, you have to say, on balance goes to the government because the government won the first time. So it's kind of like you've got a winning hand, and Sonny Balwani is going to have to do something very special in order to upend that.
2: What's happening with Holmes right now? Has she filed a motion for a retrial?
4: That's a great question because those motions were due, and the deadline came and passed and so that to me raised a lot of questions she's awaiting her sentencing which isn't until september and that's because the judge wants to see what sonny balwani's well, first of all, what happens with him, whether he's convicted or not. And either way, kind of what his role was, especially if he's convicted, he needs to figure out who was more culpable in terms of kind of meeting out their respective sentences. So he wants the information from this trial for sentencing both of them. Whether or not that missed deadline means that she's not going to make those filings and is cooperating is a question that I have. I don't know the answer, but she could still file an appeal. But these kind of routine motions for a retrial, like I said, came and went, and that's unusual.
2: That's very interesting because, as you say, those are usually filed after trial. Tell us about the aggravating and mitigating factors the judge will consider in sentencing homes.
4: Well, so she was the CEO and like you said, the face of the company, and also the person who was the point person for the contact with investors. And so she was really very heavily involved in deceiving investors. That's an aggravating role. If you're seen as the person who was really leading the fraud, that can add some time. But the biggest problem for her is the amount of money that investors were defrauded of, which, if you add up the counts that she was convicted on, is $144 million. That's just an astounding sum of money in a wire fraud case. And that sum of money gets her to around 10 years. And I think that's going to be difficult for her to get out from underneath. And so we also have these mitigating factors, which is that she is a uh, new mother. Her baby was born in July, I believe. And she's likely to raise that point, as well as the fact that she's a first-time felon. The child, though, is is not legally a mitigating factor. It's something that she can raise. So depending on what the judge feels about those various factors will determine what sentence he arrives at. But he also has to send a message to Silicon Valley. And, you know, this is a widely watched case. And he's going to want to, I think, give her some serious time.
2: On May 23rd, the CDC is lifting the asylum ban known as Title 42, which allows migrants and asylum seekers to be turned away at the border under a pandemic public health order. And three Republican states are taking the Biden administration to court over its plans to end the Trump-era policy. Here's White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. This is a decision made by the CDC. It's a public health decision. Uh, It's not one that should be Uh, wrapped up, of course, in politics. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Leon, is this purely a decision by the CDC with public health in mind, or are there political factors at play?
3: Well, I think there are a number of issues at play here. The first issue is none of this is being done in a vacuum. There's litigation that's challenging the utility of Title 42. That litigation is pressing them in the District of Columbia about not using it toward families. And so then the question is, is the policy worth keeping just for single adults? And then you start having a difficult question about, well, what is the public health reason to use it only for single adults and not for families or for kids? It's either a public health thing or it's not a public health thing. And as other public health restrictions start to lessen across the United States, then it becomes more and more difficult to justify the use of Title 42. There's political pressure for many Democrats in Congress to lift Title 42. And all of that in conjunction then with the CDC, who originally wasn't a big fan of using Title 42, had to sort of be goaded into using it now makes it easier for the CDC sort of to return to their original position that these public health exclusions weren't necessarily the greatest idea to begin with.
2: What the use of Title 42 did, and some called it a pretext to end asylum claims, is that it expelled people before they could make an asylum claim.
3: Correct. The normal law is that if anybody appears either at the port of entry or even in between The ports of entry, meaning they cross the border illegally. The very first thing that happens is whoever encounters them has to ask them if they have a fear of being returned to the country that they came from. And if they do, they have to go through this intricate process that decides whether they can stay and make a claim here or not. And the point of Title 42 is it completely short circuited that in its entirety and said, we have a public health crisis. This crisis is of such intensity that we must not even ask you any questions. We must immediately return you back into Mexico. And that's been the state of affairs for about two years now in the United States, and that's created this massive backlog of people seeking asylum on the Mexican border. And we're going to wait to see how this plays out as Title 42 starts to uh, wind down.
2: That's my next question, because... According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, more than 1.6 million migrants have been expelled under Title 42 since March of 2020. Some simply were returned to Mexico. So is there a buildup of people waiting across when the policy is lifted? According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, more than 1.6 million migrants have been expelled under Title 42 since March of 2020, some simply were returned to Mexico. So is there a buildup of people waiting across when the policy is lifted?
3: I think you're seeing three types of individuals. First, within the 1.6 million, there are a lot of repeat crossers who keep trying to get through and hope that Title 42 won't be applied to them. But having said that, there's a second group, which are people coming across the border. And these are people from Ukraine from Russia, from Nicaragua, from Cuba, from Venezuela, from Colombia, from Brazil, Haiti, all kinds of places around the world are sending people to the southern border. And so there are people already there waiting in Mexico at either San Diego and San Diego or Brownville or Juarez, El Paso. There's people waiting all over the border. But in addition, Once it becomes clearer that people will be able to come across the border, then the question is you start to see not just the people waiting there trying to cross, but people coming from all over the world to try to enter through this other border.
2: The Secretary of Homeland Security was saying that they're prepared for this. What does it take to process someone when people arrive at the border and they say they're seeking asylum?
3: Well, it's a very time-consuming process, because the very first thing you have to do is apprehend the individual or the family. And whether you apprehend the individual or the family, that will then depend on what kind of center they're placed into, whether they're placed into a processing center that's holding families or little kids, or whether they're placed into one that's holding just single adults. Then you have to take their fingerprints and make sure they're not a repeat crosser, or that they actually have, God forbid, some sort of criminal or terrorist record. And then once you've established that, then the question is what the government wants to do in a situation where someone doesn't have any status at all is to do what's called an expedited removal order, which is to say we will, we, we will retransmit you back to your home country as soon as possible. But what then happens is the defense to expedited removal is if you try to do that to me, I will be persecuted based on my race, religion, national origin, social group, or political opinion. And here the government just has to say, well, does the the person have what's called a credible fear? And a credible fear is a very, very low threshold. It's a reasonable possibility of having an asylum claim. And an asylum claim is considered even a one in ten chance of persecution in your home country. So a reasonable possibility of a one-in-ten chance of persecution is not a very high threshold. And in the Trump administration, it got to as low as high 70. In the Obama and the Biden administration, it's been at the low 90. So somewhere between the high 70% and low 90% of people can meet this credible fear threshold. And then the question is, what happens to them? And here, it's a little bit dicey because there's still a litigation going on about remain in Mexico, which means that there's a court order that some number of these people still have to be sent back to Mexico to wait to make their asylum claim. So they'd wait in Mexico until the day of their immigration court hearing, whereas others are going to be allowed to enter the United States. And the question is, well, how is that going to be determined? And I think a lot of people will be monitoring that to see if there's either any kind of discriminatory treatment of who's getting in and who's getting out or how many people are being forced to wait in the remaining Mexico program and so there's a lot of that uncertainty that's going to be surrounding this ending of title 42
2: to get asylum in this country it's not enough that you want a better life economically you want to you know better your condition so could the standard for credible fear be changed be made more difficult?
3: Well, the problem is this is statutory language from the 1980s that would have to be changed by Congress, and we know how difficult it is for Congress to change anything. If the standards could have been raised, the Trump administration would have raised the standards. What the Trump administration tried to do, because it couldn't raise the standards for credible fear, is it tried to basically take away the two kinds of asylum claims predominantly made by Central American asylum seekers, which were, for males, gang-related claims. And that is that if you were asked to join a gang and you refuse, you you fit into what's called a social group, because you have to have persecution based on one of five factors. And so they were using social groups to say, I refuse to join a gang. I'm a known entity who refused to join a gang, and so now the gang is going to kill me and be... The government of my Central American country can't do anything to solve that. And so the Trump administration really tried to bear down and say, that's not an asylum claim. That doesn't count. And then for women, the primary claim was that they were going to be victims of domestic violence and that they were being persecuted on the basis of being women because the government in whatever country in Central America that they were applying from was not seriously protecting domestic violence claims. And both of those were very foreclosed by the Trump administration. The Biden administration is actually working on regulations to resuscitate those claims. And so if that happens, you're likely to see more of these Central American claims. But in addition, you're seeing actual political asylum claims for people from Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Colombia, the Ukrainians that are now coming across the border, the Russians that are coming across the border, so well, even changing the standard isn't going to work because there's actually quite a number of garden Variety, you know, brand normal asylum claims that we're starting to see on the border. So this is really a complicated situation for the president.
2: Let's say you pass the Credible Fear interview. They release you at that point into the country awaiting a court date? So,
3: yeah. Right. So this is interesting, too, because there's a new regulation that the Biden administration actually promulgated that said that for some people who are apprehended at the border, they would not have to wait even for their court proceeding. They would actually get interviewed for their actual merits asylum proceedings pretty soon after they arrive by a USCIS adjudicating officer, hoping that what they can do is weed out the successful claims so most claims don't have to wait years and years and years, and also so that they don't have to make the unsuccessful claims also have to take years and years and years. But the question is, they've got to stack this thing up. So that. So normally what would happen is you'd have an integration court hearing, and now some segment of this group, and it's supposed to be, in fact, the entire segment of the group, it's supposed to be everyone. So we're going to have to wait and see how that works staffing-wise with USCIS. But technically, everybody's now supposed to go through a USCIS officer. And if that USCIS officer says you've won your asylum place, you, you're supposed to get it actually very quickly. Now, such that the only ones that will go to immigration court are ones that have failed in this first round of asylum adjudication.
2: Is the Biden administration prepared for this influx? They're predicting about 18,000 a day up from
3: 7,000 a day? If There are 18,000 a day. It's basically going to be impossible to say you're, quote-unquote, prepared for this. The amount of traffic, the amount of processing that's going to need to happen while you're simultaneously trying to do a new asylum regulation, while you're simultaneously trying to implement Remain in Mexico to some extent for some people— while you're simultaneously allowing Ukrainians to come across the border and you're giving them parole. All of these make it quite a difficult environment for the CBP to be dealing with on the southern border. And for people to think this is going to go smoothly is unrealistic. The question really is, what is the alternative? Can you have Title 42 forever? And I think this is the complication, because obviously the answer to that question is no. So that brings us
2: to Republican led states are taking the Biden administration to court over these plans. What's the basis of their lawsuit?
3: Well, they're using the traditional Administrative Procedure Act claims, which is that there was a change in policy. That change in policy is both arbitrary and capricious and not supported by notice and comment rulemaking. Now, I don't think you would need notice and comment rulemaking to eliminate Title 42 since you didn't necessarily need it. To implement Title 42, you just need a proclamation from the CDC. But in any case, I do think you get the right judges these days. It seems like people are getting rulings in these cases that you might not have predicted normally based on a just simple doctrinal analysis of the law, I could literally see a judge saying something as simple as, well, how do you have mask mandates on planes and not have Title 42? You've got to pick one or the other. So this is arbitrary and capricious. And just, you know, throw it away based on that and continue ordering the Biden administration to use Title 42. I would say if enough lawsuits get filed, the odds you'll find the judge who will say something like that will be incredibly high. But I do think that at some point, Once there are no COVID restrictions that the federal government is operating in any area, then it'll be far easier to justify the rescission of Title 42. I do think in this world where there are mixed messages that the federal government is issuing with regards to COVID, specifically with regards to mask mandates and other things, I do think there it becomes a little bit complicated. to have a clean argument why you're ending Title 42.
2: And Leon, some of these Republican challenges to Biden administration policy have been successful, right? Like Remain in Mexico is one. I don't know what the others are.
3: Well, the Republican attorney general have been able to successfully enjoin the prosecutorial discretion guidelines that the Biden administration has done. DACA, they've been challenging very successfully pretty much anything that's been tried to be accomplished with regard to the lessening of enforcement on immigration law, they're getting injunctions. Now, what the end result of these injunctions are going to be is tough because they can't actually take over ICE and force removals that ICE doesn't want to actually remove people for. But they are doing a good job on the edges, basically saying, hey, look, whether it's Remain in Mexico, whether it's DACA, whether it's the prosecutorial discretion guidelines, whether it's any kind of elimination of enforcement in any circumstances, the the courts are enjoying those.
2: Thanks for being on the show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.